Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's November the 27th, 2020. Lots of 20, lots of twos in there. Uh, and I wonder where we're going to be in 10 years' time in 2030. It's unimaginable. We've had such an intense year. I think many of us have just focused on getting to the end of it. But once we get to 2021, we'll, of course, begin to think of the future in a perhaps a more creative and an optimistic way, especially when we have a vaccine, if we do indeed have a vaccine for COVID. Uh, one guy who's been giving a lot of thought to 2020, to, not to 2020, but to 2030, is my guest today on the show. Uh, he is the author of um, an award-winning book, uh, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Mauro Aguilen is a, a professor uh, at the Wharton School and very distinguished futurist. Uh, Mauro, uh, welcome um, to 2020. Um, is it rather daunting for most of us to imagine 2030 after we have all lived and hopefully we all are living through this bizarre, um, iconic year? Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on your on your show. It's really a pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, it may be daunting. It may be difficult to raise the perspective a little bit and think about the future. But, you know, I think uh, we would be making a big mistake if we were just trying to make it through 2020 and to begin 2021, because the world is in the midst of a huge transformation and the pandemic is only accelerating all of those trends into the future. And if we don't start adapting to them now, it may be too late. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I think it's so important to think about what's going to happen in the next uh, decade or so. Uh, Mara, what I, one of the things I really liked about your book is it brought together a lot of themes which we've been covering over the last few months in our show. Uh, one of the big themes that we focused on is uh, demography. We had uh, a guest a few months ago, Paul Morland, uh, a British demographer who argues that demography is destiny. If there's one broad theme in your book, um, it seemed to be that demography is indeed destiny. And if we're to make sense of 2030, we need to understand the profound shift in demographic terms in the world between um, 2020 and 2030. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, demography shapes everything, right? Because really, uh, look at the following, uh, you know, I think, uh, true facts, right? So the consumers of tomorrow are the babies that are being born today. Um, you know, we can kind of anticipate how many people are going to make it to age 50 or 60 or 70, given the experience that we have with uh, mortality from different kinds of uh, conditions and diseases and accidents and so on and so forth. And demography shapes everything. It shapes politics. It shapes the economy. It shapes the society. 
So some people oftentimes say, you know, that demography is destiny is too much of an exaggeration, but I don't think it is because it really sets some of the constraints within which we can make decisions, for example, about uh, how expensive it will be to have a pension system or how many hospital beds do we need to have. Um, so I think it's extremely important to understand demographic trends, to understand how populations in the world are evolving. Uh, and that's why I pay so much attention to that in the book. Uh, the first chapter is entitled Population Drought, the African Baby Boom and the Next Industrial Revolution. You focus um, on the drop in total fertility, you imagine, between uh, 2020 and 2030. Is it, are we having less sex, Moro, or are we just not procreating more? What's the problem? Or, the, or, 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 or maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's a good thing. Well, look, actually, surveys indicate that Americans are having sex uh, less frequently than in the past. And uh, by the way, that is true, especially in the case of younger generations. Uh, but it, the most important drivers of that decline in the number of babies, which is happening here in the United States, it's been happening in Europe, in China and Japan, even in India and in Africa. Right. I mean, the number of babies continues to drop. Uh, look, the reason primarily is or has to do with women. When you give women better educational opportunities, when you give women a chance of, uh, you know, having a job outside of the household, then essentially they, they follow a career and they postpone having babies. And as they postpone having babies, they end up, of course, having fewer. Maybe they only have one or they have two. When compared to, for example, my mom who had five babies or my one of my great-great-grandmothers who had no less than 17 babies. So what I'm trying to say here is that the role of women in society and in the economy has been changing. And that is the single most important factor behind the decline in the number of babies in the world. Uh, you argue in another of your chapters that uh, second sex no more. I'm not sure whether you believe that's to be true, but you do ask the question, will women rule the world in 2020, 2030? Some people, of course, joke that they already rule the world. Um, are we going to see a profound shift in the power and role of women over the next 10 years? We always seem to be on the verge of this, but it never really seems to happen. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and of course, part of the reason is uh, that we continue to have discrimination against uh, women, for example, in the, in the labor market, in terms of wages uh, for the same kind of job. But look, by the year 2030, women will own more than half of the wealth, meaning the net worth in the world. And here in the United States, for the first time, by the year 2030, in more than half of households, American households, where there's a husband and a wife, the wife will be making more money than the husband. Today, that proportion is about 41%. But by the year 2030, it will be more than 50% of American households in which the wife is going to make more money than the husband. So I think slowly but surely, this is going to have an impact, certainly on companies and the economy, but also eventually in the world of politics as well. Yeah, so, uh, Moro, you, your book is determinedly cheerful, and and I and I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism. Some people might think it's too cheerful. Some people might think it's not cheerful enough. Uh, but of course, the the other side of of, of uh, a situation in which women are no longer the second sex, and perhaps they'll be ruling the world, is the crisis of men in the workforce and culturally and so on. You don't really get into that. You don't indeed get into any kind of politics. I, I'm assuming you 
purposefully steered clear of politics because it's the the dark zone, the danger zone. Is that fair? Yes, you're right, Andrew. Uh, so obviously, I couldn't cover every possible implication or consequence of the kinds of trends, demographic, technological, and economic trends that I describe in the book. Uh, but uh, what you're saying is, is uh, you know, really important as well, which is that uh, there are certain categories of men, uh, certain age groups, and also certain educational levels within that group that have been battered by technological change, by automation, by international trade also to a certain extent. And they've lost their jobs and now they have to work for much less, let's say, yeah, at the local... Not only they lost their jobs, they've lost their lives, they've lost their yeah. meaning. And I don't want Absolutely. to get into a conversation about Donald Trump or the last election, but certainly... Uh, many more men are, are voting for Trump than uh, than women. So that there is a, a political downside. Uh, one of the other implications, uh, Morrow, of your um, of your chapter on demography uh, is the rise of old people. Uh, you have a chapter suggesting that gray is the new black, which I am assuming you think is a good thing. What will the rise of, of gray of older people in the world mean by 2020, 2030? How will the world be different? Yeah, so look, um, like with every trend, there's always a negative side to it. Uh, but again, as you pointed out, I tend to be an optimist. And yes, we're going to have to set aside more money for healthcare and more money for pensions, right? But at the same time, I think it's a great thing that now people are living longer, right? People who are celebrating their 60th birthday today in the United States can expect to live another 30 or 35 years. And by the way, there's about 12,000 people celebrating their 60th birthday today, right? Just on this day in the United States. Uh, but look, there's also something really important. Now a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old is in much better shape, both mentally and physically, than somebody of the same age 50 years ago. So all of this, I think, should be cause for celebration. But you see, we're all going to have to adjust to that because, yes, we're going to have more people above the age of 60. It's going to become actually the largest consumer segment. Companies will no longer be able to ignore that part of the population. So again, Andrew, I think, uh, you know, we're in for many transformations and many changes. And this is definitely one of them with some negative and some positive consequences. Morrow, um, as I suggested, you you mostly steer a clear of politics, but there is a a political lining or a, a global political lining to your book. You suggest that the overall shift between today and 2020 and uh, 10 years time, next decade, 2030, there's going to be a shift in power in the world from the West, from the United States and Western Europe. You're originally from Spain. I'm from the UK. We're both now in the United States to Asia. We've had a number of um, conversations about this. Uh, Parag Khanna, my friend in Singapore, wrote a book called The Future is Asian. Um, uh, we've had books about uh, China, uh, the rise of China, uh, Kishan Ma Matubami, uh, who, uh, who believes that uh, China now is a more dominant power than the United States. Uh, we've had the FT correspondent, former correspondent in India, James Crabtree, on talking about the rise of India. Uh, in your chapter on the reshaping of the, the power in the world, uh, you entitle uh, your chapter, Keeping Up with the Sings and the Wangs, the old middle class, the new middle class, and the battle for attention. 
Uh, are the Sings and the Wangs going to be the uh, the new powers in the world by 2020, by 2030? Yes, absolutely. In terms of uh, the Sings and the Wangs representing the rising middle class in China and in India, and of course I'm you know comparing that to the rise of the Joneses and keeping up with the Joneses here in the United States. And look, I think what we need to realize here in the United States, I'm now a U.S. citizen and I live here in Philadelphia. What we need to realize is that you don't have to be the largest market in the world in order for your population to have a high standard of living. Uh, look, China and potentially also India are going to be bigger markets than our own. But that doesn't mean that our standard of living is going to decline necessarily. However, in order for us to be or continue being a rich country, we need to change our mindset and realize that we're no longer going to be number one in the world. But again, we can be the biggest technological engine of change in the world. We can continue to be the most innovative economy, even after we drop to number two or number three in terms of size. So again, I think our goal should be to try to maximize the standards of living of our population, as opposed to trying to play this game of being number one in the world which again, in terms of size, it's just not going to be possible because China and India, as you know, have 1.3 billion people, which is, which is way more than the number of people that we have here. Uh, Mauro, if, if there is a dark chapter in the book, it's the one on, on the environment. We've had a number of, of, of conversations about our current environmental crisis. We had Mario Alejandro Ariza on the uh, 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 Miami-based journalist writing about the the, the crisis of Miami, about it being flooded. Uh, more recently, we had uh, Aaron Brockovich on the show talking about the, the, the water crisis. That was a, I thought that was a wonderful show. Uh, we also had uh, Henry Finder from, uh, the New, uh, from The New Yorker talking about the broad environmental crisis. Uh, your chapter on... Um, on, on, on um, on the environment is entitled Cities Drown First, Global Warming, Hipsters and the Mundanity of Survival. How worried are you by 2030 about an environmental apocalypse? I'm worried and I'm concerned not so much because, um, you know, the full effects of climate change will be felt uh, that early, uh, just uh, 10 years down the road, but rather because if between today and the year 2030, we don't take more drastic action to arrest the problem of uh, climate change, then I think uh, we're going to suffer immensely by the year 2040 or 2050. So we need to start acting now. And by the way, the main message that I want to give is that we just can't wait for governments to get their act together. We just can't wait for technological breakthroughs. I think we also need to change ourselves as consumers. We need to be less wasteful and we, be, we need to be more mindful about how many uh, of these carbon emissions uh, we send into the atmosphere. So each of us can do a lot of change things. We can change our behavior. And in so doing, I think we're going to make a big contribution as individuals and as communities to addressing the problem of climate change. Mara, you're, you're not a polemicist, you're a futurist. Uh, do you expect people to make these changes? Are you optimistic about that? Because um, it's all very well saying people need to make these changes, but you're predicting 2030, uh, a time when cities will drown. Uh, do you expect that to happen? Are people committed enough? 
responsible enough yeah well enough to recognize this crisis they don't seem to be so far we've even elected governments generally who don't acknowledge a climate crisis yes andrew i think i share your skepticism about that and that's why we need three things we need incentives for people to do the right thing when it comes to the environment and when it comes to global warming we also need nudging. So nudging are invitations, subtle invitations for people to do the right thing without necessarily providing an economic incentive. And then lastly, you know, I teach uh, at the university. I think education is really important, uh, K through 12. I, need, I think we need to make a greater effort at persuading children and persuading young adults about all of the dangers that will, they will be encountering in the future unless we all change our behavior. So once again, I think it's incentives, I think it's nudging, and I think it's education that uh, hopefully will result in the end in behavioral change. Because without those three things, I think I share your skepticism as to you know millions of people changing their behavior. Um, uh, I sometimes joke, and it's not a particularly funny joke, that when people start falling back on education and saying the only way to fix the future is through education, they've already given up. <laughs> um, I, I'm not particularly hopeful about any educational change, especially in, a, in the relative short term of 10 years. Do you really expect that to happen? What's going to happen? A few, a few extra classes on global warming, on the impact of plastics, which we cover on this show, doesn't seem to make any difference. People are still essentially selfish and short-sighted, aren't they? Yeah, we are, we are very selfish. And also we are, as you know, short-sighted. So it's difficult for us to consider the costs and the benefits of something that we do today when those costs and benefits are going to be felt uh, you know 20 or 30 years down the road so what i believe we need to do is essentially you know inculcate in people this idea that sometimes you need to do certain kinds of things today to reap the benefits 10 or 20 years down the road again it's a hard sell i'm not denying that but i think given that our future is at risk, I think we should give it a try. When people think of the future, of course, particularly where I am in Silicon Valley, people think of technology. We've had a number of shows about the impact of AI um, uh, uh, and, of course, of new technologies, which will allow us to reinvent ourselves. We had even Kirksey on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the, the global race to genetically modify humans. We had my old friend, uh, 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 Poe Bronson on the show, imagining genetic engineering as cooking. You have a chapter on the impact of technology, more cell phones than toilets. Are you generally optimistic over the next 10 years? What are going to be the, the dominant new technologies uh, of the next 10 years? Well, I would certainly put artificial intelligence at the top of my list. Uh, but you know what, Andrew? I think most people misunderstand the potential of artificial intelligence. I don't think its potential lies in replacing human beings. I think the true potential of machine learning or voice recognition of all of these technologies that come under the umbrella of AI is really to enhance the ability of human beings to get things done. For example, we can, um, I think, create safer and more efficient transportation systems or energy systems, thanks to AI. I think we can develop better curricula and better delivery systems for knowledge and for education in the world, 
thanks to AI. So I would put AI at the top of my list, but again, not as something that would replace human beings, but rather as something that will unleash the creativity and the full potential of human beings. And then I would probably add as number two, robotics, but not in the, again, the sense of, uh, you know, shutting down factories, laying off the workers, because now we can produce everything with robots. But rather, think about all of those people above the age of 60, uh, 70, 80, as they grow older, maybe they need help. Well, robotics can play a role. And there's already a lot of companies, some of them in the Silicon Valley where you live, that are putting money into these robotics for people above a certain age so that they can stay at home and they can be well taken care of. Um, so I think there's an, an expanding universe of applications of uh, robotics and of AI that I think will result in a greater um, you know, quality of life for a vast proportion of the population. Um, you are in the business, Mauro, of imagining the future rather like John Lennon, uh, who, wrote, of course, wrote uh, Imagine, one of the, the, the iconic works about uh, a utopian future. Um, and, and you borrow some words from Lenin saying uh, in one of your chapters on the sharing economy, imagine no possessions. That's one of your other predictions, more and more of a, a ubiquitous sharing economy. But here in California, we had an election, as you did, of course, on the East Coast uh, earlier this month, in which Prop 22 was voted down. Uh, and Uber and Lyft drivers will remain contractors. So it formalizes the sharing economy, but also compounds the inequality in that economy. Um, are you convinced that this onset of the sharing economy, imagining no possessions, everyone driving around in Uber and Lyft cars, no one owning cars, but e either people uh, renting other drivers, are you assuming this is a good thing? Are you convinced of that? Well, I think um, we need to expand what we consider to be the sharing economy. If it's all about Uber and about Airbnb, then I would agree with you that there are some positive and some negative consequences, right? So, for example, neighbors complain about the noise and about uh, the degradation of their neighborhoods when uh, Airbnb rentals uh, proliferate near their home. Uh, but you see, for example, we have, a, as you know, a food crisis in the world in the sense that some people go hungry, while at the same time, the rest of us who can afford the food, we waste 30% of it. So I actually believe that through sharing of food, which is another aspect I think that needs to be developed, we could avoid uh, or resolve, overcome that problem in the world. And in addition, we would be able to cut carbon emissions because remember, agriculture contributes nearly 20% of all of the carbon emissions in the world. The day after Thanksgiving, I'm sure you didn't share your Thanksgiving dinner. I didn't, and I don't think many Americans did. Is this realizable over the next 10 years? It seems as if the sharing economy is only compounding inequality. You have a few multi-billionaires, the Travis Kalalniks from Uber and everyone else who's sleeping in their cars in the Bay Area and driving the rich around. Why should we, why should we welcome a sharing economy? Because it's I think not really we should, sharing. I think we should only welcome the sharing economy if we go beyond uh, Uber and Airbnb, those kinds of uh, platforms. I think agriculture and food sharing has a lot of potential of essentially helping us become more egalitarian in the world about the distribution of food and also um, in terms of the decline in 
carbon emissions, given that agriculture contributes nearly 20% of global carbon emissions, and we waste about 30% of the food that reaches our table. Uh, but think also about clothing, another major source of carbon emissions, uh, 7 or 8%. We don't share clothes. Uh, we buy, the average American buys 60 or 65 pieces of clothing per year. And sometimes we only wear one of those pieces a couple of times. And then we throw it away. Uh, by the way, made bro, I, uh, I always wear the same clothes as, as regular viewers. I only own one T-shirt, a black one. <laughs> I, I think I'm the future in that sense. Uh, your your penultimate chapter I found particularly interesting, Moro, on uh, there being more currencies than countries. We had uh, a young, uh, actually Argentinian journalist, Camilla Russo, on the show couple of months ago, who, who wrote a book about Ethereum and the future of the internet, very interesting book. You take up this theme of the fragmentation of currencies. You suggest uh, that there are going to indeed be more currencies than countries uh, and that we're going to be able, and you, you have some, some stuff on 3D printing, we're going to be able to print our own money through the blockchain and you predict the end of modern banking. Uh, is is the world really going to look different in 2030 to 2020? I, I saw recently that, for example, uh, PayPal now is, al is allowing people to uh, is allowing people to um, PayPal is allowing people to uh, to exchange uh, cryptocurrency on their platform. Are we on the verge of a, a, a cryptocurrency age? I think we are. However. I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen unless we move beyond just uh, trying to find a substitute for the money that the government issues. And I say that because, as you know, Andrew, governments and central banks will always resist losing control over the money supply. So in the book, I argue that unless we turn cryptocurrencies into digital tokens, digital tokens that incorporate not only money, but more importantly, they also incorporate discounts, bonuses. Uh, they incorporate, um, you know, the way in which uh, we relate to the government, we pay taxes, uh, maybe also the way in which we use public transportation. And uh, it would be digital tokens that include incentives for us to be more environmentally conscious. So I think that it is cryptocurrencies in the sense of an ingredient or a component in this broader concept of digital tokens, which, as you know, are already being used, for example, in Estonia, that uh, Baltic Republic yeah. in northwestern Europe. Right. I think that is the future. Digital tokens that incorporate cryptocurrency. Well, I wrote a book called How to Fix the Future a couple of uh, years ago, in which I had a whole chapter on Estonia. And I agree that Estonia may well, for better or worse, and it's generally for better, be the future. The only problem with Estonia is it's such a small country. It's hard to imagine larger countries like the United States replicating what the Estonians have done. Meanwhile, we're talking about 2030, and when you go to CNN, as as we speak, the um, the headlines are still about COVID, still about 2020. You have a a final piece in the in the book about how COVID 19 will shape your imagine your imaginary 2030. You of course wrote most of the book before COVID 19, but you had a, you had the opportunity to put that postscript in. How do you expect COVID-19 to shape or reshape 2030? Yes, look, Andrew, it's relatively straightforward because for the most part, COVID-19 and the type of economic troubles that we're facing 
accelerate the trends that I discuss in the book. So the accelerate population changes in the sense that lots of look, people dying, right? I, yeah, exactly. Funny, I guess, but it's true. Exactly. Uh, technological adoption is also accelerating. The rise of emerging markets in Asia is accelerating as well. Although so it's this killing off old people as opposed to young people. So maybe uh, maybe grey won't be the new black. Well, not not not. Not really, because uh, young couples, remember, Andrew, have fewer babies when they see a lot of economic uncertainty or maybe they lose their jobs. And if they postpone having the babies that they're planning to have, that accelerates population aging. So really, the only trend that I think may be partially reversed by this pandemic is the growth of cities. Uh, so a lot of people, as you know, now that they can do remote work. They're reconsidering where they live. So Make that may sure be the only trend among the all of the ones that I discuss in the book, which may be derailed or partially reversed. I think it compounds what you're Make saying, sure because when the rich flee the cities, because they're the only ones who can afford to flee, where you cities can will inevitably the, the only way we're going to avoid the drowning is Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Well, there's so much in this book. While you're at it. If you enjoyed Wonderful what you heard, we'd appreciate FT, a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell uh, a friend about the show, that would also tons help of things too. To think about. Congratulations Today's on the book, episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. And certainly when it comes See you to next demographics week. to look at this and book. In addition so though to your book, Murray, your uh, in the basement of your home in Philadelphia, in these strange times, in our COVID age, what else should people be reading to make sense of uh, perhaps the future? I think a nice companion here is a book that came out uh, about a year and a half or two years ago, Factfulness, which was completely ahead of its time. And also insists... By Hans Rosling. Uh, yeah, by Hans Rosling. A few optimistic takes on the future. Yeah, but it's also a book that emphasizes how important it is to get our arms around the numbers in terms of what's going on in the world. And that's also something that I convey in my book. It's really important for us to understand the magnitude of the changes that we're going through.